For our scripture reading this morning, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Habakkuk, the minor prophet Habakkuk. We'll read chapter 3. We'll read from Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll read the whole chapter, the last chapter of Habakkuk. The sermon will be mainly from verses 1 and 2, but we'll meditate in the whole book of Habakkuk. So let us read the last chapter, which in many ways summarizes the whole book. Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shagayanoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. In his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand and there was... And there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thy anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the waters passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lift up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. In the light of thine arrows they went, and at at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thrash the heathen in anger. Thou went forth. The salvation for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thy anointed, thou woundest the head of the of the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck, Sila. Thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out of a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of the great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at thy voice, at the voice. Hotness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up, up unto the people... He will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. 
the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hands feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places, to the chief, chief singer on my string instruments. Let us turn once again to the book of the prophet Habakkuk. So we'll meditate on chapter 3. We'll meditate on the whole book of Habakkuk, but we'll use verses 1 and 2 of, ter- of chapter 3 as a summary of our message. So let us read once again Habakkuk 3. We'll read only verses 1 and 2. Habakkuk 3, 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigayonoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. After... COVID, the eyes of the world turned into a different matter. Now, the eyes of everyone, or the breaking news of the moment, is war. It's the war that is happening between Russia and Ukraine. So the whole world is now talking about this situation. And in one way or the other, the appearance of evil troubles us, shocks us. For some, it is a matter it is threatening or even chaotic. For others, it is a great surprise. But one way or the other, it, is, it always bothers us. It always surprises us. And often, from many different perspectives, the same question appears. Why? Or why, Lord? Why, Lord? When in some sense, what we experience, what we are facing Challenges our theology. Challenges, challenges what we know to be true about the Lord. In, in our secularized society, the Old Testament prophets are much closer to us than what we often think. Until very recently, the West experienced a Christian culture. The West was known as a Christian nation, a Christian culture, but not so anymore. And in many ways, we are much closer to these Old Testament prophets than we often think. Our society has become secularized, just as it was in the times of the prophet Habakkuk. People doubt and mock Christianity. They follow other gods, either the god of entertainment and pleasure, the god of money, the god of the God of freedom, you name it. So looking for the prophets, we find much of how to face our reality, our world today. And the question is, how could a holy God tolerate evil? Or even how could he use evil? He is all-powerful, almighty. How could he 
tolerate evil. And the work of God is mysterious and sometimes challenging for our theology. And the whole book of Habakkuk is going to deal with this matter, the problem of evil. And not just that, but how the Lord uses evil. And for that purpose, we'll look into Habakkuk 3, 1 and 2, how to respond to the Lord's mighty works of salvation through judgment, through judgment. And first, we'll look into humility before God's work. Second, we'll see submission to God's works. And finally, hope through God's work. Habakkuk lived in a time of injustice and idolatry. But instead of turning, turning to Israel, turning against Israel, against the people, he turns to the Lord. He turns to the Lord and is struggling to understand evil around him. And he does so in a form of lament. Chapter 1, Habakkuk breaks into lament, praying to the Lord, bringing his complaint before the Lord, trying to make sense of what is happening before him. Israel had tasted spiritual reformation before, had tasted reformation under King Josiah. But after Josiah's death in 609 B.C., Jehoiakim, his son, came, came to power. But instead of continuing what his father Josiah did, Jehoiakim undid. He reversed all the reformation that Josiah has brought. And he brought Israel into a great downfall. He brought Israel into infidelity to the Lord. And then Habakkuk complains. He brings his complaint to the Lord as he's living under the times of King Jehoiakim. His first complaint is that the law of God is paralyzed. Chapter 1, verse 4. The people has neglected the law, the Torah of the Lord, and it's paralyzed. The people has neglected it so much that it's now as if it was paralyzed. And God responds to Habakkuk's complaint, saying that he is aware of Israel's injustice and evil, and he will bring Babylon to judge Israel. The unexpected answer of the Lord is a message of exile. And Habakkuk, facing this answer, gives them a second complaint, chapter 1, verse 12, until chapter 2, verse 1, saying that Babylon is even worse than Israel. So how could God use this wicked nation? Oh, Lord, they are worse than us. They are much worse than us. So how could you use them? Especially, how could you use them to judge us if they deserve a greater judgment than we do? Or Habakkuk's thought was simple. If you are holy, Lord, you cannot stand with evil. So how could you use them? if they deserve more judgment than we do. In other words, why is God doing this? Why is he going to do this? Ultimately, it is a problem that every Christian faces. When we are trying to live the reality before our eyes, when we don't see happening to us what we think to be the best for us, it is the struggle between living by faith and living by sight. Struggle that all of us face. And God's answer to Habakkuk is mind-boggling. 
God's answer is so unexpected, so great, so important and life-changing that it must be written in tablets of stone. Chapter 2, verse 2. Just like the Ten Commandments were so important that it had to be written in tablets of stone, in the same way, God's answer here in a unique way, He asks to be written in tablets of stone. Are God's people going to be free from judgment? Are they going to escape the chastisement that the Lord is about to do, to bring? No. No. Yet, throughout all possible conditions and most severe circumstances, we read in chapter 2, verse verse 4, the just shall live by his faith. The just shall live by his faith. That is... So important, so life-changing, that is not just written in tablets of stone, but is quoted over and over in the Bible, quoted in the New Testament many times, in the book of Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. This becomes the very cornerstone of the Christian faith, and is going to be used in the Reformation times as well. This becomes the cornerstone of the Christian life. That we don't walk by faith. That we walk by faith and not by sight. And the fact that God uses Babylon to judge them. That that he uses Babylon. Doesn't mean that he's going to leave Babylon free from judgment. No. He's going to bring Babylon down as well. And the rest of chapter 2 gives a list of five woes. A list of the... How God is going to deal with the corruption and immorality of this nation. A list of a severe judgment that the Lord would bring upon them as well. And the corruption of Babylon was not unique to the nation. In fact, in the Bible, the corruption of Babylon is going to be used as the pattern for, for evil, as the pattern for corruption. And as a way to, to speak that someone is corrupt or that a nation has become corrupt is going to be compared to Babylon. And in the same way, God's judgment over Babylon is going to become the pattern for God's judgment over evil until it finally climaxes in Revelation 17 and 18, the great final judgment over Babylon and all its followers. So, the climax judgment over Babylon becomes the pattern of how God deals with evil, how he brings judgment over evil. And this, this would already have been enough, don't you think? Enough, enough to obliterate the prophet's audacity of questioning the Lord. Enough to bring the prophet to a position of humility before the Lord. But now... In the midst of this list, in the midst of great judgment of this list of the five woes, harsh condemnation, there is yet another promise. There is yet a second promise that the Lord gives to his servant. Chapter 2, verse 14. For the earth will, shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So God will be glorified through everything, even judgment. That is the second promise 
that the Lord gives to his servant, that God at the end, he will be glorified. Nothing will fail to give glory to God, even judgment. The Lord's response to Habakkuk, that even through suffering, the judge shall live by faith, and that everything will glorify God is so powerful, so overwhelming and life-changing that the prophet now breaks into worship. As the prophet comes to chapter 3, he changes his position, and he breaks into worship. He's not in the watchtower as he, he was before. No, he's now praying and praising the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shagayanoth. He's praying. And the whole book of Habakkuk deals with this matter as well, how it closes, open and closes with reference to his prophetic office. If you check chapter 1, verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, emphasizing the importance of the word of the Lord, as the word of the Lord changed the prophet. The very word that the Lord spoke to him changed the prophet and was going to change the whole nation and the whole Christianity as well. The word of the Lord indeed changed him from being audacious to now being humble before the Lord. And he cannot ask for anything else. He couldn't ask for anything else for the Lord. The only thing he can give now is praise. Notice that the emphasis of the text is not only on prayer, as the heading says, but also in praise, in singing to the Lord. This, this expression, Shaigayonoth, is quite unique in the Bible. It only appears here and on the heading of Psalm 7, indicating that this was used, uh, was composed as a, a song, as a hymn for the church. And we see that also by the closing of, of this chapter, verse 19, to the chief singer, on my string. And throughout the, the chapter 3, we have a threefold sila on verses 3, 9, and 13, also emphasizing the idea. This was not simply a prayer, but also a song, a psalm to be sang by the people, a way that the prophet was praising the Lord through these words. And the humble prophet comes before the throne of grace. And the only thing that he can do now is worship. And sometimes, sometimes we are tempted to feel that judgment, the trials and tribulation are a hindrance to worship. They are something that keep us away from worship. But here we see that it is the contrary. It is the contrary. These things ought to fill worship, what to bring us even closer to the throne of grace what to motivate us to worship even more the Lord. And this, this thought in our culture nowadays shows how or why the imprecatory psalms, as we sang Psalm 137, a psalm that deals with the Lord's judgment, are being forgotten in many ways, are being left to dust, something that we often try to skip in our family devotions that we try to not talk about. But it's not how the Bible deals with this matter. In fact, we cannot even open the Psalter 
without facing this reality. As some Jews deals with this matter as well, how the king destroys his enemy, how the king in fierce anger and judgment brings justice. We cannot even open the Bible without dealing with this. Genesis 3.15, the great promise of the gospel that the head crusher through judgment would bring salvation. This is not a secret message that we hold. That is something that the whole Bible speaks about. That we are saved, not escaping judgment, not even despite of judgment, but through judgment. How the Lord brings salvation through judgment. And the humble prophet hears the word of God and he fears. He fears. He's not above this. He's not beyond fear. No, he fears. But it's not a desperate fear. It's not a desperate fear, but a worship-filling fear, we could say. Not a man-centered fear, but a Christ-centered fear, a God-glorifying fear. The Puritan Edward Marbury say the, says this, Fear directed by faith will soon find the face of God. For fear humble us, and faith directs this humiliation to the mighty hand of God. Fear makes us full of desire, and faith directs our desire to God. Fear makes us run. Faith shows us the face of God and invites us to run there. And thus, the contemplation of God's justice and mercy thus fill the heart with zeal and the spirit of supplication. That is a, this is the reality. This is the reality, how the two things come together. How the two things ought to bring us to humiliation, humiliation before the Lord and to bring us to worship. And the prophet is now speaking in a much different tone than what he began, began the book. He's speaking now in humility before the Lord. And a heart does not seek for forgiveness apart from humiliation. We do not ask for forgiveness if we are not first humbled before God. If we don't first recognize our condition, our limitation before God. And this is how the prophet is. And the prophet does not finish here. He does not end here just by being humble by God's mighty works. He is also going to show full submission to God. Full submission to God's works. Verse 2. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. These two petitions, they are parallel to each other, each one unfolding more the meaning of the other, pointing now how the prophet is requesting, requesting the Lord to do his work. Revive it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do thy work. But the question is, before jumping into the meaning of this, is which works? Which works? is the prophet asking for the Lord to do. 
This word, works, only occurs twice in the book of Habakkuk. Here, and in chapter 1, verse 5. The Lord says in chapter 1, For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. And then the whole book tells what works the Lord was going to do. A work of severe judgment. A work of severe judgment indeed, but not destituted from grace, not destituted from salvation. A work of revival, a work of grace and mercy, but a work of judgment nevertheless. O Lord, revive thy work. Revitalize thy works, Lord, even if means judgment. Even if means the severe judgment that is be, about to be brought upon this nation, do it, Lord. Habakkuk didn't like first. At the opening of the book, he didn't like the answer that the Lord has given to him. But now he's ready for it. Now the prophet is ready to face what the Lord is about to do. A work of judgment by wicked people. A work of discipline. But yet, he is able to, play, to pray. Oh Lord, do it. In order that we can see the results of this work. In order that we can see thy glory, Lord. Do thy work. Revive thy works, Lord. Revive thy works. We often use this expression in our prayers for revival. We often use this as we pray for great revival among us, but are we ready to pray like this? If we know the meaning of these words, if we know the context, how the prophet was praying for this, are we really ready to pray for revival like this? If we know what a revival means, if we know, like Habakkuk, who, who was on the heels of a great work of judgment, even though that judgment was going to be used for the revival of God's church, are we ready to pray like this? We are living in a context much like Habakkuk was living. Our nation has become secularized as well. Are we ready to pray for revival in this way. You see, the, prom the problem with the church today is not that we, we don't. We are still like Habakkuk complaining, chapters 1 and 2, about evil around us. No. The problem is that we are apathetic. We are boiling slowly, like the frog in a pan, boiling the culture of our days. We acclimated to the secularized culture around us. We became so used to the wicked practice around us that we don't even pray anymore. The problem is not that we are complaining as Habakkuk was against the Lord. No, we don't even do that. We don't pray for revival for two reasons. Either because we simply don't believe it, we don't believe that the Lord can do it again. 
And he has done so many times in the past, not only in the times of King Josiah, but throughout church history so many times we don't believe it. Or because we don't want it. We don't want the Lord to revive his works. We don't want the Lord to bring a mighty revival because we know what it means. And we don't want it. We don't want this. And the only way, the only way that we can possibly pray as Habakkuk did is through the eyes of faith. Is knowing that there is, is not, this is not our works. It's not about us. It's not our works. It's not about reviving us simply. But it's reviving His works. It is His works. Revive Thy works, Lord. The only way we can pray like this is if His glory is enough for us is if we are ready to lose everything and say, Oh Lord, thy glory is enough. Thy grace is enough. Even in the midst of trouble, even in the midst of affliction, thy grace is enough, Lord. Take everything from me, Lord, but don't take thy grace from me, Lord. Are we ready to pray like this? Are we ready to lose everything to have His glory. To have His glory filling our lives, filling His church in a mighty way. It is His works, not ours. Not ours. Revive Thy works, Lord, for Thy glory is enough. The only way is full submission of faith in recognition that God's grace is enough, even in the worst circumstances. Lord, the Lord was going to use Babylon to judge Israel. And then he was going to judge Babylon. But his response is that even through these moments, first the just shall live by faith. And second, his glory will fill the earth. He will be glorified through everything. You see how these two promises, how these two promises enable us to face the worst circumstances, the worst possible circumstances. These two promises are the two arms that enable us to face every single trial in our lives. To face the evil around us is to know that He will be glorified at the end and that the just shall live by faith, not by sight. Not only that we are justified by faith, and that is true, we are justified by faith alone, but that we keep on living by faith. We keep on living by faith. We walk by, we walk by faith and not by sight. He gave us not a way to understand His works, but He gave us promises to face every single condition of our lives. This is a message of comfort. Not despite circumstances, but even through the worst circumstances. You see, if this was a message of better circumstances, this would have been a weak gospel. 
That's right. This would be a gospel that is incapable of comforting those who are facing the greatest afflictions. But this is not a message despite circumstances. It's a message through the worst circumstances. This is a message capable of comforting the orphans, the widows, the poor, the crippled, the blind, everyone and anyone. Capable of comforting those who face great afflictions and cannot understand. For we have the promises that carry us through all that. And we have not only the promises, but we have the greatest example of all, don't we? We have Jesus. We have Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What example we have! He's our Savior and our greatest example who faced the worst possible affliction. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. May the Lord help us to pray, Lord, like this. Oh, Lord, do what it needs to be done. Do what it needs to be done, Lord. But revive thy works. Make thy works known across the nation, Lord. Make everyone know and recognize thy mighty hand, Lord. Do what it needs to be done, Lord. So we can see thy glory, Lord. Make thy glory visible before our eyes, Lord, in a way that we can praise thee in the midst of the congregation. But don't leave us. Apart from thee, Lord. Don't take thy glory. Don't take thy name away from us, Lord. For the joy that is set before us, he enabled us to worship him like this, even through the greatest afflictions. Habakkuk began the book praying for better circumstances. But he closes the book praying that despite circumstances, he will rejoice in the Lord, in the God of his salvation. The prayer of faith enables us to rejoice, rejoice, despite circumstances. Our generation seems to be disconnected from this reality. This seems to be a foreign idea from, uh, for us for we became so used to material wealth and abundance that we mistake, we mistake the presence of these blessings, the presence of these things, of stuff, with the presence of God himself. We fail to recognize the place of judgment and justice in the divine decree. We want God to be glorified by delivering us from affliction, by delivering us from going through this. 
But we don't want God to be glorified through affliction, through our affliction. You see, we mistake the presence of material things with the presence of God Himself. That was never the biblical view. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not wait your suffering and affliction to end to glorify God. Do not wait whatever trials that you're facing to end in order to glorify God. No. Glorify Him even through afflictions. And you can say, oh, but I, I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like I want to do it right now. Do it against your feeling. Do it against what you feel anyways. And you can say, oh, but I, I fear. I fear what is upon me. Do it anyways. You see, the Lord didn't give Habakkuk reasons. The Lord didn't make Habakkuk understand what he was doing, why he was doing what he was doing. No. Just as he did with Job. Even if you fear, even if you, you cannot make sense, oh Lord, I can't make a sense of what is happening in my life. I can't understand what is happening to me. I can't understand why this is happening. But even so, even so, Lord, do it. Revive thy works, Lord. Even so, thy glory is enough. This is the prayer of faith. And his glory is enough. Doesn't matter what we face. His glory is enough. But this is not only the prophet doesn't end here. He doesn't simply end here. This would have already have been enough, don't you think? For us to go home content and say, yes. Yes. The Lord is all-powerful. And He gave us promises to rest. But the prophet has yet a final petition. There is yet a final petition. There is yet a place to plead before the Lord when we face these afflictions. The very last portion of the text that show us how there is hope through afflictions. The prophet says, verse 2, In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Against the divine, the dark background of the divine justice, against the dark background of fierce judgment, the brightness of His mercy shines forth. The brightness of His grace shines forth. There is yet a place to plead. God's mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. The prophet is not asking, Oh Lord, 
Forget wrath. Oh, Lord, forget, forget wrath, Lord. And remember mercy. No. In wrath, through this, Lord, through the work of that thou is about to do, in wrath, remember mercy. This again is foreign to us. This has become so foreign to us. Our intellect often tries to separate God's wrath from His mercy. As if the two things were completely incompatible. They could not be together. As if a condition for the existence of His mercy was the non-existence of His wrath. But this was never the case. In wrath, mercy. Habakkuk is ready. He's ready for this. He knows that what is about to be is indeed wrath. Is indeed a fierce judgment. Thousands of people are about to be slaughtered. This is going to include the destruction of Israel. The slaughter of thousands of people. He knows it. But even so, he asks for mercy in the midst of it. Because he knows that the two things are not, are not against each other. No. No, they are often connected. They are often connected. He knows that times of peace... And when the barns are full, it's not a synonym of the presence of God. No. But he knows that even with empty barns, as he closes the chapter, he is able to rejoice in the Lord, the God of his salvation. And Habakkuk then goes on to recount all that the Lord has done. He goes on in the chapter 3 to show that the Lord has already done what he's asking the Lord. He has, already, he has already done all this that he's asking. His glory already covered the heavens and the earth. Chapter 3, verse 3. He already made the world and the nations tremble before his acts. Verses 6 and 7. He defeated the rivers allowing Israel to cross the Red Sea. Verses 8 and 9. And through, all, and through the anointing of his king, he crushes the head of the enemy. Verses 13 to 15. So this is an Exodus-like victory. This is something that the Lord has already done in the past. So the Habakkuk is asking in many ways for the Lord to do it again. He knows that the Lord is able to do what he has already done. And he's asking for the Lord, do it again, Lord. Revive once again thy works, Lord. Jesus Christ, the anointed king, is glorified by bringing salvation through judgment. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. The head crusher, who crushes the head of the serpent. And in that fierce judgment, even being wounded, he brings deliverance to his people. Habakkuk looked forward to this event. He looked forward to when this would happen, but we look back. We look back to the work that Jesus Christ has done, the work that he has done in the cross, and we can say with confidence that in wrath, he has 
remembered mercy. This happened already. We have seen the greatest display of all, that in wrath, in the wrath of the cross, in the fierce wrath of the cross, when Christ was wounded, was crushed on the cross, He has remembered mercy. Mercy for us, for our sins. Habakkuk is doing what the Lord commanded him to do. He's living by faith. He's praying now by faith, with the eyes of faith, so that God can be glorified even in the worst afflictions. And sometimes when we are going through afflictions and tribulations, we just want it, wish it to pass. Our only prayer becomes, Oh Lord, get it over. Oh Lord, bring it to an end. We don't, we don't pray for the Lord to teach us anything through this, but we, we just pray, Oh Lord, get it over. We often think of ourselves to be like Joshua, right? Strong and courageous. But the reality is that we are often still with the Israelites in the desert, grumbling, grumbling and murmuring for everything and anything. There are many, many, many things we can do this. For example, when you have a child and the baby is born and you rejoice, but then you start praying, oh, I just wish it for... He or she starts to be sleeping through the night. And then, oh, I just wish it to be out of diapers. I just wish it for him or her to be eating by herself. I just wish it to be out of school, to be out of the home. And, and when we realize, we wish it their whole lives away. And we do this with everything. We do this with our works. We do this with our job. We do this... With everything, we just wish it to pass. But we don't wish the Lord to teach us anything through it. We don't wish His name to be glorified through everything. Even the simple things. Even the trials and tribulations. The prophet asks, in wrath, remember mercy. Not despite our wrath. But in wrath, you see, there is no such a thing as the problem of evil, as the world uh, names it. And this helps to set Christianity apart from every single religion in the world. Showing that God does not toss a coin to decide what is going to happen. He's not... He doesn't toss a coin to decide if evil or good is about to happen. No, he has everything predestined for a purpose. Everything for a purpose. Either good to them that love God, Romans 8, 28, or the wicked for the day of evil, Proverbs 16, verse 4. But either way, God will be glorified at the end. God will be glorified at the end through everything everything, even evil. But perhaps all that I say, all that I say so far wasn't enough to convince you. All that I say so far wasn't enough 
to convince you. You're like doubting Thomas. You must see to believe. So there is yet a final way. Let me give a final illustration to help us understand this, to help us to make sense of this reality that he not only permits evil, but he actually uses affliction for his glory and for his namesake. A German preacher wrote a play, a drama, to deal with the, the, the results of Second World War II, the brutal legacy of that war, of the evil that the Holocaust brought. So he wrote this drama called The Sign of Jonah. And the book aims to deal with, to answer the well-known question, why does God allow, allow suffering? And who is to blame for all this suffering? It was the goal of the book that he wrote, the story that he proposes. And the story goes on showing a court process that was trying to, to see then who is to blame for all this evil? Who is guilty? Of all atrocities. First, the court named the, the people themselves, especially the Germans, are accused of being responsible for their own horrific fate. But the Germans reject this, saying that the, the guilty wasn't theirs. Perhaps the guilty was of the soldiers or of the one who built the furnace to burn the victims, but the guilty wasn't theirs. And then the court goes on to inquire more people. But they, the population rejects this idea also, saying that perhaps the guilt is of people in power, people higher in the chain of command, perhaps even queens and kings or officers. But they also reject this idea. And then they come to a final and new accusation. All in one voice, they say, God is guilty. All at once, in one consent, say, God is guilty. You see, it is a blasphemy to put God in the dark, as C.S. Lewis said. It is a blasphemy to argue the Creator as if He had to answer to the creature. For the sake of the argument, let us say if, if it were possible to put God in the dark, granting that this blasphemy would have been possible, what then is the sentence? And the, the book goes on then to tell how the judge asks the people, what would be the sentence? What is the verdict? And how would they propose to be phrased? And this is how they phrased God shall become a human being a wanderer on the earth deprived of his rights homeless, hungry, thirsty in constant fear of death it shall be born to a woman somewhere along a country road and the moans of the poor creature shall hang in his ears day and night he shall be surrounded by the, the feeble, the sick, the filthy, by people bearing marks of leprosy. Hoarding corpses shall bear his path. He shall know what it means to die. He himself shall die. 
And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony, even the great blasphemy of putting God in the dark? Even more of receiving the sentence upon himself. He did it. He has done this in Jesus Christ. Not for his sins. Not for his sins. For our sins. The greatest evil that ever happened. In fact, the only undeserved evil that happened in history was upon him. The worst evil, the greatest affliction, the Roman cross of Calvary, he did it. Do you see the irony? He took upon himself the curse of our sins. And the sinfulness of our sins find its display in the horrors of the cross. As a pastor once said, he took the greatest evil that ever happened to produce the greatest love that ever existed. In wrath, in wrath, mercy. In wrath, he has remembered mercy. As the cup of wrath was poured out upon Christ, grace flows to us. The greatest love that ever existed. His love flows. His grace flows to the, through the greatest affliction that ever existence existed. The apex of salvation through suffering. And the cross of Christ fulfilled all that we have seen in this text. In the cross... He showed the greatest humility to take for himself the form of a man and even to die. In the cross, he showed submission to the Father, for he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the one that sent him. In the cross of Christ, we have the climax of this verse, in wrath, remember mercy, the apex of salvation through suffering. As he drank the cup of wrath to pour up unto us the cup of grace. This is the most, most powerful tool to help us to find comfort even in the greatest afflictions. Not despite of affliction, but even through affliction. That if he can bring good out of the cross, he can bring good out of anything. For the greatest good is not material stuff. Not even our lives. The greatest good is not even our lives. The greatest good is His glory. His glory. As we profess, the man's chief and highest end is to glorify God. To fully enjoy Him forever. And as we go out, we are enabled to pray. Revive Thy works, Lord. O oh, Lord, let not your judgment be for the destruction of your, of your church, Lord, but for building it up in wrath, mercy, 
And as we do so, we do so fully assured. For different than Habakkuk, we don't look forward to this event, but we look back to the cross of Christ and we rest that indeed, in His wrath, He has remembered mercy. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, how wonderful, how tremendous is Thee, Lord. O Lord, how majestic are Thy works as well, Lord. Even when we cannot understand, even when we cannot make sense, even when we fear, we can rest. We can rest that thy glory will be magnified and that the just shall live by faith throughout all conditions. And O oh Lord, what a wonderful truth that in wrath thou hast remembered mercy. O oh Lord, we are here today because in the cross of Christ he has remembered mercy. As our sins were put to death in him and his grace was shed forth for us. O oh Lord, enable us to pray like this. Enable us to go out and to, to preach this gospel, this reality that one way or the other Thou will be glorified, Lord, either by the works of redemption or thy works of judgment. O oh Lord, call sinners to forgiveness. Call sinners to repentance even right now. And O oh Lord, enable us to worship thee in all conditions. And O oh Lord, how we long for the day that we will see thee face to face and evil will be no more. Oh, Lord, what a promise that though we battle, we fight in this earth, one day evil will be no more. So prepare thy church for that day, Lord. Revive thy works. In the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make known. And oh, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. Bring reformation and revival. and Have mercy on us. Let thy kingdom come and thy will be done. We pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.